It, it is interesting. I mean, you are an advocate, in essence, for toughening up. I don't know if you ever use the phrase, but others do man up in a way that they consistently Actually, fail to do. I usually mention that they should stop being pathetic weasels. <laughs> Yes, I effing love Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson's interview on Hard Talk. Mr. Reagan. This guy is a very clever interviewer. His name is Stephen Sacker. He is a leftist, and he very obviously wants to discredit Jordan Peterson. He's developed a meticulously planned and incredibly sophisticated attack strategy. Throughout the interview, he attempts to build an image of Jordan Peterson, which is terrifying and evil. He's building this false construction of Jordan Peterson. You can visualize that as, you know, somebody building a house or some other kind of building with a brick foundation. Every question he asks is like another attempt to set one more brick into that foundation, right? So when he's built up enough bricks, you know, when he's convinced you of enough horrible things about Jordan Peterson then, you know, you, you see the house emerge, right? You see the, the false construct of Jordan Peterson emerge uh, based on this foundation of all these horrible things. Okay, so for instance, one of these bricks establishes that Jordan Peterson is crazy, right? And then this next brick establishes that he's a racist, and this brick establishes that he is manipulative, etc., etc., etc. Welcome to Hard Talk. I'm Stephen Sacker. Anger is a powerful force in politics, and there is a lot of it about. Donald Trump, Brexit, and a host of populist movements have been fueled by anger with the way things are. Where does it come from? How best to respond? In his introduction, Stephen Sacker frames Jordan Peterson as aligned with angry conservatives. Now, there are a lot of code words in the leftist media now. Okay, one of those code words is populist, right? This has become code for bigoted. Right? If you're a populist, you're a bigot in the mind of the left-wing media. And angry is now code for hateful. Well, one much-discussed, provocative perspective comes not from a politician, but the Canadian clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson, whose defense of traditional values has won him a worldwide following. Stephen Sacker illustrates Jordan Peterson's perspective by using the word provocative, right? He says he's got a provocative perspective. Peterson's perspective is not provocative, okay? The mischaracterized representations of Peterson's perspective are often provocative. So to open the show with that adjective, provocative, suggests that past mischaracterizations of Jordan Peterson's perspectives is what Sacker is here accepting, right? He's accepted all of those previous mischaracterizations of Peterson's perspective. So we're already misrepresenting Peterson in the introduction, as usual. Is his diagnosis liberating or dangerous? Sacker poses the question, is Peterson's diagnosis liberating or dangerous? Now, I wouldn't actually mind this question if it were being posed fairly. Many people do think that it's a dangerous message, and so it's a good question to pose if one were to fairly examine Peterson's views. But that's not the intent of Stephen Sacker. His intent is to establish that Peterson's diagnosis is dangerous. And so he's not asking, are Jordan Peterson's views dangerous? He's saying, Jordan Peterson's views are dangerous. He's putting a seed in the mind of the viewer so that when they watch this interview, they'll watch it with that in mind. As I said, meticulous, sophisticated attack strategy. A search for meaning, is it also appealing, reaching out to people, and in particular men, it seems, from all the surveys, men who are angry? And immediately we're into the standard accusation. Stephen Sacker is using the coded word angry again, meaning hateful, but let's delve deeper into 
into that coded word. What is the theory behind this angry white man accusation? It's not just a Stephen Sacker thing. This is a typical leftist talking point. The theory is white people generally, and white men particularly, are angry because they used to have unique privileges that they no longer have. We, we exclusively could vote, uh, no women or minorities could vote, and uh, we were the only ones who could have certain jobs or work in high positions of government. We tended to have all the opportunities and all of the power. But there are two problems with the theory of the angry, resentful, white American guy that firmly place it in the world of fantasy. Firstly, these things did not exist within the lifetimes of any of the men that the left is accusing of being angry, hateful followers of Jordan Peterson. Secondly, only a very select few white men, less than 1%, ever had this power and opportunity that they're talking about. The vast majority of white men, historically, were just as poor and oppressed as everybody else. A lot of people say, well, what about, you know, black slavery in the South? You know, white people didn't have to deal with that. That's true. But that's not the only kind of suffering that ever existed in the world. Lots of people suffered throughout history in a variety of terrible ways. As much as black slaves, if not more so. But the point isn't who suffered the most in history. That's not the point. The point is that very few white men historically had a great deal of power, influence, or opportunity. Most of them lived a meager existence just trying to keep themselves and their families healthy just like everybody else. The left would have you believe that all white men historically were these powerful dominant oppressors and all white men today are the beneficiaries of their tyranny. But it just isn't true. 99% of white men throughout history struggled under the thumb of oppressors just like everybody else. And I, I know my ancestors did. I came from poor German farmers. Every ancestral avenue I've explored on Ancestry.com, poor farmers. And that's the lineage of the vast majority of white men in America. And there never has been a time I remember being in charge. I, I don't remember having more opportunities than women or minorities. So I'm not angry for having lost that. I never had it. So to lump all conservative white men into this group of resentful, angry racists, that's delusional. And then cascading off of that delusion, there are two subsequent delusions. The second delusion is that, that these hateful white men, the first delusion, are the the core audience of Jordan Peterson, right? And the third delusion is that Jordan Peterson himself is a hateful bigot, as evidenced by the, these hateful, bigoted guys that follow him. The idea is that he's not just sympathetic to such evil, he's the diabolical ringleader, he's the supervillain, he's the secret imperial grand wizard of the KKK masquerading as a humble clinical psychologist. So you see, this is not just a simple singular delusion, it's a complex multi-tiered delusion. Lots of little believable delusions which add up, you know, to one giant meta-delusion which is absurd and laughable. I think that Jordan Peterson needs to start saying this, he needs to start responding to his accusers by breaking down the delusions, discrediting them, and then, 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 explaining what the real truth is because the accusations though they sound mild because of the encoded words are extremely serious well i don't think it's reaching out to them because they're angry i think that it's reaching out to people who are alienated uh, certainly there's lots of people who are alienated i think that it's um, partly focused to some degree on young men because my youtube channel is very popular and most of the people who watch youtube happen to be young men so uh, that's skewed the listening audience in, in, in terms of that demographic. It isn't obvious that it's only young men that are buying the book. That's much more mixed. The, so. Yeah, there are many books out there and over the years many published which talk about a meaningful life and how to live it. And you call yours rules for life. I mean, it, you could perhaps characterize it as a form of self-help. But there are very few of those sorts of books that go into great detail about the dangers of Marxism, talk about the history of Mao's China, Stalin's Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. There's a real political 
content to your book, and I wonder why you are so preoccupied with reminding your individuals, who you say are searching for meaning, reminding them so repeatedly, so often, about the dangers of totalitarian communism. Why are you so preoccupied? Okay, he asks him why he's so preoccupied. Now, this characterization sounds relatively slight, but it's an attempt to characterize Peterson as a radical. People who are fair and measured tend not to fixate or obsess. The opposite correlation also exists. Those who fixate and are obsessed appear to be more imbalanced. The idea here is to add yet another brick in the foundation of the mischaracterization of Peterson. In this case, the brick establishes him as a crazy radical. Well, I'm not. I mean, there's only a section in one of the chapters that actually deals with that, although there are motifs that run through it. But it's more a matter of being concerned about collectivist ideologies in general and the danger of ideological thought as a means of guiding yourself through life. So, I mean, one of the failures that characterized the communist totalitarian states, and equally on the fascist side, was the failure of individual character. Because, for example, in the Soviet Union, equally in places like Maoist China, people were called upon to falsify their own experience, to lie in the service of the state, to not say things they needed to say and to not stand up when they should have stood up. I'm just wondering whether it's your analysis that if you look around the world today, but particularly the Western world, which you focus most of your attention upon, you see a real danger of uh, some sort of renewal of, of a neo-Marxist tendency. This is another brick, similar to the previous one. It's another Peterson is crazy brick. Sacker asks the question with a, with a tone that, that suggests that neo-Marxism is not recognized as a philosophy that currently exists in the West anywhere. Like, as if this is something that comes purely from Peterson's imagination. Stephen Sacker must be well aware of the trend in academia toward neo-Marxism, but he disingenuinely asks the question as if he's never heard of such a thing. You see a real danger of uh, some sort of renewal of, of a neo-Marxist tendency in well, you society. You certainly, certainly see that in the universities. The universities in, in North America, and to some degree in Europe as well, are especially in the social sciences and the humanities, are completely dominated by a left-leaning political agenda. The stats on that are crystal clear. Most of that's been generated by Jonathan Haidt and the Heterodox Academy. There are very few centrists or right-leaning people in the academy. And that means that the discourse on campuses has become increasingly radicalized. And the problem I have with that isn't the fact that it's left-wing, it's the fact that it's extreme. And if the same thing was happening on the right-wing, I would be equally perturbed about that. But it's not. Peterson's response to this question is perfect. It's a pretty easy question to respond to, given Jordan Peterson's experience and expertise. So he answers it satisfactorily. Um, that said, I, I think it would have been nice if... Um, the disingenuous nature of the question had been called out by Peterson during the interview. I know this is a difficult thing for most people to, to do, even for Peterson to do, in the moment of being interviewed. The initial impulse is merely to give an answer to the question in such a way that refutes uh, the proposition suggested by the question. And I think Peterson is extremely effective in doing that. But, but I do think that it would be a little bit more effective to undermine the psychology of Stephen Sacker as well, to call out these kinds of accusations as the propaganda that they are. However, uh, failing that, the world will always have Mr. Reagan videos to fill that void. But with your focus on what you see as the, the real dangers of the left and its totalitarian That's inclinations... That's not my focus. My fundamental focus is on the necessity for people to adopt individual but, but responsibility. It, it, Stephen Sacker sees that Jordan Peterson has effectively countered his accusation, and this accusation is clearly important to him. 
This brick is, in his mind, essential for building the false construct of Jordan Peterson that he is attempting to build in this interview. So he jumps back in, trying to contradict Peterson here, desperately attempting to salvage the integrity of the accusation. But Peterson does not allow him to get away with it, which is fantastic. What it seems to me, uh, beyond doubt, just reading your own writings, but also reactions to your own writings, is that you have found a way of appealing to and winning the sympathies of uh, a, a great number of people who, to be sort of crude about it, are supporters of Donald Trump, who are, by nature, it seems, interested in the populist movements that we see in many different parts of the world right now, and some of whom identify with this phrase, the alt-right. Yeah, and I wonder how you, as a, as a psychologist and an academic, feel about the, the nature of so many of the people who sympathize with you. Now, because Jordan Peterson has so effectively countered his questions, he has become more blatant in his accusation. He has stopped using so much coding, and he's begun accusing Jordan Peterson outright. He's simply stating those things that he has before only been suggesting. And this is a strong sign that he feels he's losing the debate, because that's really what this is. It's not an interview. This is a debate. I've seen many interviewers do this in recent years, especially in Britain. This is quite obvious in the Kathy Newman interview, as well as in the Philip Dodd interview. These leftist interviewers believe that it's their duty to combat the evil of conservatism that's becoming popularized by Jordan Peterson and others like him. So they invite these conservatives, in this case Jordan Peterson, to what they claim is an interview. But they have no intention of interviewing the subject. They want to debate him, pure and simple. The idea behind this deception is that the guise of an interview often encourages the subject of the interview to lower his guard. This is what happened in the interview Ben Shapiro did on the Bill Maher show recently. Ben Shapiro stated after the interview that he had been led to believe that he and Bill Maher would be discussing things that they agreed upon. Uh, he was not anticipating an antagonistic debate, which is why he seemed less confrontational, I think, than he probably would have been otherwise. He did not destroy Bill Maher in the same way that I expect he would have done had he anticipated and prepared for a real debate. This debate masquerading as an interview trick is a cowardly ploy. However, in Jordan Peterson's case, it's utterly ineffective. He has, at this point, come to expect that most interviews in Britain conducted by leftist reporters will inevitably be a debate. But here's the funny thing. The interviewers actually tend to be unprepared for his preparation, which is, to me, bafflingly arrogant. Stephen Sacker's new tack here, abandoning subtlety for clear and blunt accusation, actually opens Jordan Peterson to really come out full throttle and blast through the the precise accusations that are being that are being leveled here. There is no dancing around what Stephen Sacker is accusing Peterson of. He's simply stating what he thinks, and Jordan Peterson is thoroughly refuting it in a manner thoroughly convincing. I don't think it's true. I think that that's a vision of my followers, and I don't think of them as followers. I think of them as viewers and readers and listeners. I know perfectly well. I've talked to 150,000 people in the last three months at 55 live events. I understand my audience, and I know perfectly well that the vast majority of them are there because they were rather disoriented in life for, for various reasons and have decided to develop a personal vision and to take more responsibility and to try to tell the truth as best they can and that that's actually helping them a lot. That's what's happening. The thing is, is that... But, but would you recognize there's an overlap between the sorts of people who, who can deeply sympathize and find a, a resonance in your message and many of those who have turned to Donald Trump in the United States right now? The supposition from Stephen Sacker is that Trump supporters are evil and therefore Jordan Peterson fans are evil. 
This is how insane the British media is. They don't argue that Trump supporters are evil because of X or Y. They merely take it as a point of fact. Trump supporters are evil. And apparently, this has become a way of defaming the character of a person. To say that the people who like them or the people that are associated with them are Trump supporters. Because some of the people who like you are Trump supporters, that must make you evil. That is completely insane. The British media assumes that every conservative in the US is a racist, a misogynist, a homophobe. There's no longer a question about this in the British media. This is simply fact. I'm not sure there's such a thing as objective reporting in Britain anymore. And I don't think that, that the British public should stand for this. I mean, look, there should be public outrage that these kinds of assumptions are being made on a daily, on a daily basis in the British press. The BBC is publicly funded. If there's not balance in the reporting, if there are not conservative voices amongst the British press that is funded by the British government, the British government must obliterate the publicly funded media enterprises. The British government is currently run by the Conservative Party in Britain. And although this is something of a farce, because even the right wing in Britain is astonishingly left wing, it is still in principle sympathetic to conservative ideas. And so to permit the entirety of the British press funded by the British people through their government to have such a biased, unbalanced, I would even say bigoted view of the world, does not help to appropriately inform the British people. This is an absolute tragedy in Britain, and it desperately needs to change. I mean, well, there's some overlap because there's, there's like 30 million people watching my videos, so there's overlap across the entire political spectrum. But the thing is, is that in the discussions that I've had with people, let's say in the mainstream media, about the response to me, there's a chronic and constant attempt to make it political. It's not political. What I'm doing is not political. It's psychological. And so, like, I talk to but, at yeah, least... Of course, but you can't control the way in which your words and your messages are perceived and used by but others. I also... You cannot control the way your words are perceived and used by others. Exactly. This guy is attempting to accuse Jordan Peterson of attracting or associating with or emboldening or being one of these hateful bigots that this guy delusionally believes exists in these massive numbers in the United States. And then he goes on here in an accusatory tone to suggest that Jordan Peterson cannot control the way his words are perceived or used. Shouldn't that be exculpatory? Shouldn't that exculpate Jordan Peterson from any, from any responsibility with regard to anything he says about human psychology? But Stephen Sacker here is saying that educating people on human psychology might be bad because bad people might exploit that knowledge for evil purposes. But what does he want Jordan Peterson to do about that? Does he want him to stop teaching altogether? We can't stop education. Okay, it's true that information is a powerful thing. And, and look, to examine the ways in which powerful things can be used for evil is potentially valuable. But to put that concern on the shoulders of somebody like Jordan Peterson, somebody who is using the power of education, using his knowledge of psychology for exclusively good purposes, that is absurd. Do we blame Albert Einstein for the deaths that came as a result of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? No. The theories of relativity and nuclear physics have enormous benefit to the world. We, we do not blame the discoverer of knowledge or the inventor of technology for its misuse because that discourages discovery and invention. And that would obviously degrade society. It's true. One day somebody could use the human psychology that Jordan Peterson teaches about for nefarious purposes. But he's not using that knowledge for nefarious purposes and he doesn't encourage others to use it for nefarious purposes. This is just another desperate attempt to suggest that Peterson is acting irresponsibly with the knowledge and teaching acumen that God has blessed him with. It's another brick. The brick of the irresponsible use of power. And it's total nonsense. I've received hundreds of letters from people who've indicated quite clearly 
that they were attracted by the blandishments of the alt-right, let's say, and that they've been led back to the political centre as a consequence of listening to what I've been telling them. Jordan Peterson's response is again perfect. It's so good, in fact, that you can actually hear Stephen Sacker sigh. It's hilarious. Listen to this. <laughs> they've been led back to the political centre as a consequence of listening to what I've been telling them. The guy actually lets out an audible sigh because he's so frustrated that every time he tries to place another brick into the foundation of his mischaracterization of Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson dissolves the brick instantly. This guy cannot build this false construct of Jordan Peterson and it's driving him crazy. And it's hilarious. (laughs) Would it be fair to say that, that one of the core messages of your book is that we underestimate the power and the relevance and the importance of, uh old stories and myths, including the Christian Bible, but also including a host of other stories, which you say have survived the test of time and tell us truths about ourselves, which many people today, and you, I think, would then say many people in academia today who are into uh, sort of constructivism and relativism, are missing the truth of old verities. This is actually a very fair question, except He's setting up another accusatory question, right? He's trying to mold another brick. Would, would you agree yes, with that? Yes, I would that? say that's definitely a theme that runs through the book, is that there's wisdom in traditional stories that we need to understand, not merely believe, but also to understand. And so, for example, last year I did a series of 15 lectures on Genesis, right? And most of that audience was young men, and that's been viewed by millions of people online now. And the Bible in particular? I mean, you say the Bible, for better or worse, is the foundational document of Western civilization. It is careful, it's careful, respectful study can reveal things to us about ourselves uh, and what we believe and how we should act uh, more than can be discovered in almost any other matter. Yes, The Bible's right. central, it seems, to your well, belief certainly system. central. So here's the question that he was setting up with the previous question. I told you, meticulous and sophisticated attack strategy. This is the same tack that Philip Dodd took, the religious nut tack. Well, your ideas are founded in Christianity, so essentially you're just a religious nut whose views are based in primitive superstition and magic. I said this before in the Philip Dodd video. In Britain, devotion to Christianity is not really revered in the same way as it is here in the U.S., It's not even respected, really. In fact, it's derided and ridiculed. So Stephen Sacker is appealing to that sense of derision of Christianity within British culture. He's trying to to set here the religious nut brick. It's central to Western culture. It's the foundational document of Western culture. And and, and, And this word truth, which is quite an important word for you, you think the Bible contains irrefutable truth. Ooh. Stephen Sacker sees an opportunity here. He thinks he may have something. He can get... He can get this religious nut brick fixed and cemented in here. Notice that the word irrefutable is sneakily slipped into the question here. He's making a perfectly reasonable belief that the Bible contains truths into a much less reasonable belief that everything in the Bible is an irrefutable truth. So one of the, one of the primary uh, criticisms of religious people generally is that they are, is, is the criticism of blind faith. Right. I, I've literally never met any devout Christian, any priest, any preacher who advocated unquestioning faith. Right. Everything like if you look at the the entirety of the history of the writings about Christianity from the years in which Christ was alive until today, there is so much analysis in there. Right. I mean, I would I would suspect that the analysis of Christianity specifically just the amount of writing that exists in the world certainly rivals just about any other discipline of study 
ever in the history of the world, and certainly up into the 20th century. I mean, people have been for centuries really, you know, hyper, hyper focused on trying to interpret the Bible properly, trying to trying to determine the accuracy of some of the stories and, and all these kinds of things, right? And every Christian I've ever met has moments in their life where they're deeply questioning of their of their own principles and their own ethics and their 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 Christian faith. So you know th- this idea, I mean, is silly. This idea of unquestioning faith is silly, right? But it's sort of an image of the unthinking Christian that's a popular thing to promote in Britain, especially in Britain, but uh, in general amongst atheists around the world. They like to say, "Well, religious people are unthinking people." No, they're not. They're they're probably you know, way more thinking than your typical non-religious person. So here he's trying to characterize Peterson's entire belief system as unreasonable. He's trying to characterize Peterson as a religious radical who interprets every word of the Bible literally and accepts things unquestioningly. I mean, it's just silly. I mean, it's just... (laughs) Well, I don't know what irrefutable means necessarily, but it certainly contains a form of truth. I mean, it's a narrative form of truth. It's the same form of truth that you see presented in front of you when you go see movies, for example, or when you read great literature. Well, movies, a truth movies are fiction. I mean, yeah, but yeah, because there are no truths ever explored in great fiction. <laughs> but look, we wouldn't be able to rank order fiction in terms of its quality if it didn't bear some relationship to truth. All right, so we, we, we've heard from you, you, you your fear of totalitarianism. The fear of totalitarianism. Fear. Another brick. We equate fear with a lack of reason. This brick is the brick of irrationality. We also know that you regard the Bible as a, as a foundation stone of, of your thinking. And, and then he throws in the religious thing again. I mean, he's trying to recap for the audience the bricks that he has, maybe not very convincingly, but at least attempted to have, to have set. So to recap, brick of irrationality here, religious nut brick here, and now let's lay another brick on top of these. Here's what a fellow Canadian philosopher, Paul Thagard, has said about what he sees as, as the weakness in your argument. He says, Peterson assumes that the only alternative to religious morality is some form of totalitarianism or despondent nihilism. But secular ethics, secular ethics have flourished since the 18th century and even before. He talks about David Hume, Immanuel Kant, Jeremy Bentham. Every one of these secularists that Stephen Sacker names here derived their ethics from the Christian tradition. You don't seem to give any real importance to these sorts of secular ethics. No, I don't think that's true at all. I think that I have great respect for Enlightenment doctrines and it's clearly the case that our current rather fortunate situation economically and politically is the consequence of something like a marriage between these old stories and fundamental traditions that are in them and the enlightenment doctrines upon which countries like England, for example, are founded. So, and I'm a a scientist with many published works, and so I'm perfectly aware of, despite the criticisms of that particular philosopher, perfectly aware of the utility of a scientific and enlightened approach. But to think that that humanistic values, let's say secular values, have flourished for a long time, and then to call that 200 years only means that that philosopher and I have very different ideas about what a long time is. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm I, an evolutionary biologist, I, by the way, not a political philosopher. And well, so let, 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 my let, time scale is thousands of years, not hundreds of years. Peterson again brilliantly refutes Sacker's feeble attack. Notice how, notice how measured Peterson is in this interview. Peterson's mentioned uh, many times... Uh, what great pains he goes to in order to remain measured in in these attack interviews, and to be honest, I, I prefer a little passion. I, I 
I think it would have livened up the interview a bit. But uh, but I think Peterson was on high guard because uh, I think he recognized the sophistication of the attack strategy straight away and set himself into the strongest defense mode he could muster. And uh, you know what? I, ser- I think it served him well, really. I mean, he makes really zero mistakes in this interview, as far as I could see. Uh, serious ones, anyway. Yeah, your time scale is thousands of years, but I wonder what, how you then conceptualize the importance of change. You know, a, a lot of your work is about constancy and finding truths in the, in the very deep past. But what about the importance of change? I mean, if right. one thinks about everything from uh, the emancipation of women, equality for women, think about gay rights, think about civil rights. These are changes that we've seen in our societies in the last 50 years. And many people think that your philosophy actually has no real place for change at all. It it runs counter to change. This is actually a huge misunderstanding amongst those on the left. There is this pervasive misunderstanding about right-wing thinking or conservative thinking. The misunderstanding is that we are opposed to change. They consider themselves the proponents of political change, right? Now, this is absurd. Everybody, everybody, whatever their political leanings, wants to see change in the world, right? Everybody wants to see poor people brought out of poverty. Everybody wants to see the world become safer, richer, more liberated. Everybody wants to see the world become a better place where we can we can all enjoy each other's company respectfully with brilliant educations and being the most productive human beings that ever have existed and fully enjoy our lives in a way that we've never seen before in the history of the world. We all want that, right? And we know that in order to get there, there has to be change in the world. We, we get it. But so here's the difference between the right and the left aiming toward that utopian goal, right? People on the right look to the past to see what was working historically, but, but maybe we no longer do that stuff today. So, so then we know what we should maybe go back to doing or you know revive. We also look at what's working today so that we know what we should protect, what we should conserve and not change. And we also look at what is not working today and what we seem to have never been able to get right, and we target those things specifically to change. Conservatives precisely target what to change, what to preserve, and what to revive. Progressives often ignore things that have failed in the past, like communism. They often push to change things that are currently working exceptionally well, like capitalism. Often leftists just want arbitrary change, just for the sake of change. And that sounds crazy. It's so irrational, it's hard to believe that leftists would actually want that. But let me explain the allure of this. Change is a very attractive idea, even when that change might produce a negative result. Because change feels like progress. Change, change feels like we're doing something. It feels like we're moving toward a goal. So change, the idea of change, is very seductive for somebody who doesn't understand politics particularly well. For those who, who don't really have a nuanced understanding of an issue, just the general idea of change sounds right. It's not that conservatives don't want to change anything, it's that we only want to change things for the better. Leftists often neglect to carefully examine whether or not the things they want to change might actually make the world a worse place. This is what has facilitated the rise of the socialists in America, right? They just shout, change, 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 and they decry conservatives for not going along with their crazy plans to arbitrarily change everything. They say conservatives don't want progress. And this is the next brick that Stephen Sacker is trying to set. It's the brick of stagnating progress. But it's actually worse than that, because not only do leftists condemn conservatives for stagnating progress, they also tend to accuse conservatives of trying to bring back negative aspects of the past. This this ties in with the idea that conservatives are racist and misogynist and homophobic. In leftist speak, the word traditionalist means somebody who wants to bring back hateful, bigoted ideas. And so Sacker here is actually trying to set two bricks. He's trying to to lay the brick of stagnating progress and also the brick of historical inequity. 
All of this, of course, is so opposite to Jordan Peterson's actual philosophy that Jordan Peterson doesn't even have to answer the question particularly cleverly. It's so easily refutable that Jordan Peterson takes on a slight expression of disbelief in his response, and his response is, is something that he says fairly often in interviews, well, that just means they haven't read my book. <laughs> All that means is that they haven't act actually haven't read it. And that's right. This guy is now getting into territory that drifts so far from any kind of believable criticism of Jordan Peterson that it delves into the realm of blatantly misleading. Stephen Sacker, having developed such a meticulous attack on Peterson, must know full well that Jordan Peterson's ideas have nothing to do with stagnating progress or dredging up historical mistakes from the past. But Stephen Sacker is running out of bricks to make, and so now he's desperately grasping at anything he thinks he might be able to use to create a, to create a foundation to manufacture this absurd false construct of Jordan Peterson. It's a little sad, really, but, but even sadder that, that those viewers who want to dismiss Peterson's ideas might actually accept these misleading attacks as valid. But that's why I'm here. One of the things that I point out very clearly in the book is that you have a, an internal guide to meaning. It's, a, it's an instinct. It's a manifestation of something called the orienting reflex, which is a very deep instinct. And what it does is try to place you on the border between stasis and transformation, which is where you need to be. Because in order to survive properly, you have to, you have to maintain your structure, but you have to update it in the face of constant challenge. For people watching this, let's ask a, a basic question. If I were living in the late 19th century in the UK as a man, I may well have persuaded myself that the natural order of things is for men to have the vote and women not to. If you were living at that time with your regard for tradition and long-term eternal truths, you might well side with those who oppose the emancipation of women. The question that Stephen Sacker poses here indicates that he has completely ignored the sophisticated response that Jordan Peterson just gave. He hasn't listened to a single word Jordan Peterson just said. Either that or he hasn't understood any of it. Either way, he's gone back to the question he asked previously and is now simply restating it in more illustrative terms to try to present Jordan Peterson's ideas in an even darker way. This is sort of what happened with the earlier questions when Jordan Peterson answered too convincingly. Uh, Sacker redoubles his efforts, right? He stops speaking in code and he starts flinging accusations in more blatant, less subtle terms. What this man doesn't realize is that every time he does this, he opens himself up to Jordan Peterson more clearly dismantling his points. Despite this meticulous, sophisticated strategy, this guy is failing badly. It's like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan till they get punched in the face. <laughs> well, assuming that my primary emphasis is on the maintenance of tradition, but like I said, it's not. My primary emphasis is on the ability for people to live in a in a context that's defined by by active meaning and so for example to the degree that we're engaging in a discussion here that that is actually going to be meaningful to both of us and to the people who are watching it what will what that will actually signify is that we've done a proper job of staying within a tradition that's sufficiently general so that we can all understand it and sufficiently updating it at the same time jordan peterson's answer here is great I think it's probably gone over the head a little of Steven Sacker. Uh, that said, I actually think there is a better answer. I think Jordan Peterson should have actually asked a question back. Question being, do you think there are any ideas from the past that were valuable? The answer is yes. Of course there were good ideas in the past. So the notion that we might respect some ideas from the past does not mean that we must accept every single idea that anyone's ever had ever. 
And that's what you're suggesting here. You're suggesting that because I might respect some ideas from the past, that I respect all ideas from the past. More insidious still, you are suggesting that in particular, I favor historic ideas based in bigotry, based in misogyny or racism. This is an absurd assumption. I do not think that racism or misogyny or homophobia or any of these ideas are good ideas. You can have appreciation for some historic ideas, some current ideas, and also believe that there is a possibility that we may have some better ideas in the future. We can believe all of those things at the same time. We have that capacity, primitive as the conservative brain may be. And I, you know, I think that's actually a better response. It's a little bit more antagonistic and it's a little bit more sarcastic, but I'm a more antagonistic, sarcastic guy than Jordan Peterson is, so naturally I would prefer this kind of response. But to stick with the equality for women then, and to stick with specifics, why do you argue that society today has been overly and dangerously feminized? Here we have yet another brick, the brick of misogyny. Okay, so now Sacker is trying to characterize Jordan Peterson as a misogynist who wants to oppress women. I've never understood why British journalists take this particular tack. The woman who interviewed him for the Intelligence Squared interview took this tack. The guy who did the Vice interview took this tack. Kathy Newman tried it. And I just don't see it. I mean, okay, I don't see how anyone would be convinced by this particular idea that Jordan Peterson is a misogynist. I mean, I could see... I can see how people might be fooled into believing some of the other ideas that are put out there about him, but, but the misogynist one seems to me to be fairly silly. I mean, I don't, th I don't see how they think this could really work at all, but they keep trying it, and Peterson keeps shutting them down. So let's see how this one goes. Well, because I see a backlash against masculinity and a, and a sense that there's something that there's something toxic about but what, what is this idea of being such? over... What, why is society overly feminized? Well, I didn't ever say that society was overly feminized. So if we're going to discuss my views, we should use my actual words. I believe that there's a danger in our society at the moment of making the assumption that our culture, for example, is a tyrannical patriarchy, which it is in some small part, and that any active um, engagement on the part of young men in particular is indistinguishable from an unacceptable power and dominance drive, which I don't believe. But surely I think if, all if, of that if, is if, inappropriate if, and incorrect. If much of the power and authority over a very long historical period is laid with men, isn't it only inevitable that some men will get a little hacked off when women are given a, a, a stab at something approaching equality? Isn't it inevitable that some men will get a little hacked off when women are given a stab at something approaching equality? No. No, that is not inevitable. This question is again the result of Sacker having lost the subtle argument, so now he's stating his views blatantly. And, and now we're back to the delusion that all these angry white guys in America want to return to some kind of magical time in which white men were princes and everyone else were their humble servants. Let me definitively destroy this delusion. No. No, that is not what we want, okay? We don't even imagine that this is, an, that this is accurate to history, okay? We don't imagine that such a world ever existed. Again, most white men were just as oppressed as everybody else. And even when a very small minority of white men had all the power, that was so long ago that none of Jordan Peterson's fans actually remember that time. It didn't exist within our lifetimes. This guy acts as if all white men living today have existed from the beginning of time and that we, we all used to be royalty and, and now we're all angry because black people and women can vote and we can't handle it. This is all insane. And anyway, what about Queen Elizabeth and Queen Victoria? 
rulers with immense power who were, I know you might not believe this, women. <laughs> okay. So no, men did not always have all the power. And no, none of us men are hacked off because of some change in power dynamic that happened way before we were born. This is an example of the left living in a fantasy world, right? This is why every idea that the left has is wrong, because it's all based on these fundamental ideas of the world that only exist in a fantasy in their minds. If much of the power and authority over a very long historical period is lain with men, isn't it only inevitable that some men will get a little hacked off when women are given a, a, a stab at something approaching equality? Well, that could be inevitable, but that doesn't make it right, and it's certainly not something that I support. So, my, my so you think men's resentment is more I'm important than women's effort to attain equality? I'm not in favor of resentment at all. And now he's taking the famous Kathy Newman tack. The what you're saying is tack. So what you're saying is, yeah, this is going to work. So he, he says here, you think men's resentment is more important than women's attempt to attain equality. What the hell was this guy listening to? That could be inevitable, but that doesn't make it right, and it's certainly not something that I support. Jordan Peterson didn't say anything remotely like that. This actually goes well beyond Kathy Newman's misrepresentations of what Jordan Peterson was saying. Kathy Newman would attempt to twist Jordan Peterson's words. She would look for meaning in his words that he did not intend. Stephen Sacker is not even using Jordan Peterson's own words to try to misrepresent what he's saying. He's just inventing ideas out of literally nothing. He asked a question, let Jordan Peterson speak a few lines of an answer, and then responded to the answer that he wanted Jordan Peterson to give, but Jordan Peterson never gave. Jordan Peterson said something completely different, but Stephen Sacker then responded to an answer that he completely invented himself. This has gone beyond the realm of the unfair and into the realm of the utterly bizarre. So you think men's resentment is more I'm important than women's effort to attain equality? I'm not in favor of resentment at all. I think that if you're resentful, something's, something's definitely wrong. Either you need to grow the hell up and, and, and take stock of your life, or you have some things to say to people that you haven't been saying. Peterson gives a final answer here. It's definitive, it's simple, and it's clear. It's a pretty easy response since the accusation that the guy levels is just bizarre and completely unrelated to anything Jordan Peterson has said, so the dismantling of the accusation is merely a matter of simply refuting it. You say science undoubtedly shows us that men and women have different traits, and there's a lot of science to, to back you up on mm -hmm. that, but you say that because of that, men are hardwired to achieve success and to be successful in a way that women are not. The misogynistic brick again. <sighs> this time trying to set a new brick of misogyny in this foundation upon which he's building this false Jordan Peterson construct. This time, Stephen Sacker has taken a pretty complicated array of data that Jordan Peterson has discussed in previous interviews, detailing many of the differences between men and women that might explain some of the reasons why men tend to be more successful than women, and Sacker has simplified and misrepresented Jordan Peterson's ideas about this in order to suggest that he is a misogynist. This is a blatant misrepresentation of Jordan Peterson's views. Now, I don't know if this guy is just trying to be provocative at this point, trying to say things that will get people to watch this video, or if he genuinely is trying to convince people that these are Jordan Peterson's views. Either way, what he's doing here is insidious. This is entirely irresponsible for any journalist. This guy should be completely and totally ashamed of himself for trying to misrepresent somebody's views in this way, trying to demonize them, trying to damage their career, and trying to misinform the public. You know, with regard to journalism, this is all 
pretty serious unethical stuff here. No, not at all. I've never said anything like that. I've said that there are biological differences between men and women that express themselves in temperament and, and in occupational choice, and that any attempt to enforce equality of outcome is unwarranted and ill-advised as a consequence. And yet some of the most successful societies, judged on contentment indices or indeed material success, are those, for example, in Scandinavia. Where the, where where, the temperamental differences between men and women are larger than they are in any other society. Well, so you say, you point out that in Scandinavia many more women choose to be health workers than engineers, for example. It's not what but, I say, it's what the large-scale scientific no, investigation fair, has revealed. Fair enough. But equally, Scandinavia is full of societies, one could point to Norway, Way, where they've made a specific legislative effort, for example, with a quota of 40% of women on corporate boards or a quota for women to be in Parliament. Right. They've, they've specifically engaged in social engineering and right. it seems to be working and it seems it to be... It doesn't seem to be it's, working well, particularly. Forgive me, but Norway is top of every contentment index that we see across the world. I hate this argument. The left always drags out the Scandinavia as this ideal utopia for which to strive. This is because Scandinavians score highly on these bizarre happiness indexes that, that somebody developed. So you want to know the method for extracting the data for the happiness indexes? It's self-reported happiness. That is to say, people are merely asked, are you happy? <laughs> and here's something people don't know about Scandinavian culture. In general, it is considered admirable to be, to be a happy, content person. Much like how in Russia, it's considered respectable to be a miserable, unhappy person. So, reason demands that we recognize that it's possible that Scandinavians self-reporting their own levels of happiness on these surveys might be inflating their levels of contentment. Now, I'm not saying that life in Scandinavia is terrible. My ex-girlfriend's from Finland, and there are a lot of phenomenal benefits living in these socialist countries. However, there are far more problems than we imagine. Just like any other developed nation, the Scandinavian countries have advantages and disadvantages. Some people are happy, some are miserable. But saying you're miserable is shameful in Scandinavia. Everybody expects you to put on a happy face, and so self-reported happiness is skewed. There's a book on this called The Almost Nearly Perfect People, Behind the Myth of the Scandinavian Utopia. It was written by Michael Booth, a British citizen who lived in Denmark for many years. In the book, he writes... Over the years, I have asked many Danes about these happiness surveys, whether they really believe that they are the global happiness champions. And I have yet to meet a single one of them who seriously believes it's true. They tend to approach the subject of their much-vaunted happiness like the victims of a practical joke, waiting to discover who the perpetrator is. Leftists desperately want to credit all of the false happiness of Scandinavian countries claimed in these happiness indexes exclusively to their socialist political policies. But from everything I've seen, any real happiness enjoyed by Scandinavians exists in spite of their crazy leftist governments, not because of them. There is a Norwegian documentary TV series that everyone should see. It's called Brainwashed. It illustrates the absurdity of the Norwegian standard leftist presumptions of blank slate thinking. And you can find this on YouTube. Just type in Norway documentary Brainwashed and you'll find it. This is actually a documentary that Jordan Peterson referenced in an interview, so I looked it up. And I think everybody should watch every episode of this documentary. And if you don't know what uh, the blank slate idea is, it's basically the idea that, that we're all born with a genetic and intellectual blank slate. Steven Pinker popularized this with his book, The Blank Slate, in which he discredits the idea. 
the the idea is that we can be as fast, as coordinated, as strong, as intelligent, as well-educated, as skilled at anything as anyone else could possibly be, just so long as we have the right environmental circumstances and we work hard enough. It's the idea that there is no genetic predisposition toward or against any abilities anyone might have in the world ever. This is demonstrably false. Humans are born with different potential abilities, both physical and mental, based on their genetics. Some will be great at sports, some will be great at science, some will be great at everything, and some will be terrible at everything. That's why they call it the genetic lottery. The blank slate ignores pretty much all of science. It is a moronic set of beliefs that, that takes the idea of all men are created equal, and it perverts it to be all humans are born identical. <laughs> the people who believe in the blank slate idea are people who do not live within the bounds of our actual reality. They believe in the blank slate because they want to believe it, not because it's real. They function in a world of fantasy. When you see the result of legislating within a world of fantasy, as illustrated by this documentary series, you will understand why it is so utterly horrific and devastating to humanity. And it is horrific. And it is devastating. If Steven Sacker wants to lay the pretend happiness of Scandinavian culture at the feet of socially engineered egalitarianism, it would be wise for him to consider that this same socially engineered egalitarian government resulted in the horrors that you will see in this Norwegian documentary series. Again, type into YouTube, Norwegian Documentary Brainwashed. Well, okay, so first of all, Norway has plenty of oil money, which is definitely contributing to that. And second, it depends on what you mean by working. There's no evidence, for example, that the legislation that was designed to increase the number of women on boards has produced any movement whatsoever in the number of pe women who hold managerial and administrative positions in Norway. The theory was that as societies became more egalitarian, that men and women would become more the same. But that isn't what's happened. What's happened is the biggest differences between men and women now, temperamentally and in terms of their own interest, have manifested themselves in the Scandinavian countries. And so what that will mean is that men and women will make different choices in occupation if you let them have free choice. Now, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to stop that from happening? Is that the feminist perspective? Jordan Peterson answers this question beautifully. He actually asks the interviewer an incredibly fair question. He, he takes Stephen Sacker's proposition to its logical extreme, and then he invites the interviewer to comment on that extreme proposition as a representative of the intellectual left. So how does Sacker respond to this? He simply moves on to the next question. <laughs> he has no answer. He has not considered any of these ideas with any kind of depth. He has not educated himself well enough to be able to contend with any of Peterson's points, and yet he is resolved to challenge him as viciously as he possibly can. Let's get back to a word I used before and ask you directly. Do you approve of, do you think it's a dangerous word, equality? This word equality. Do you approve of equality? <laughs> what the hell kind of question is this? I mean, I expect Jordan Peterson will answer in the typical Jordan Peterson way. It depends on what kind of equality you're talking about. If we're talking about equality of opportunity, then yes, I think it's a great idea, something to strive for. But if you're talking about quality of outcome, I think it's a destructive idea. I mean, has this guy not seen any other Jordan Peterson interviews before? All right, let's see what Jordan Peterson says. What I do you approve of equality of opportunity, but I think that equality of outcome considerations are detestable and dangerous beyond belief. Exactly. So for so. you, whether it be uh, gay rights campaigners, civil rights campaigners, uh, or indeed women's rights campaigners, if they want to see 
equality deliverable in outcomes, they are damaging society, are they? This is a very cleverly worded question. He does not ask if these campaigners establish legislation which require equality of outcome, are they damaging society? He asks if these campaigners want equality of outcome, are they damaging society? But we're not really talking about what people want here. We're talking about legislation. We're talking about, we're talking about forcing people at the, the point of a gun to do what you tell them to do. This guy makes the aims of the left seem really benign and helpful. Well, they just want things to be equal. That's what he's trying to infer here. Well, it depends on how far they go with it. I mean, and how they measure it. I mean, these are very difficult technical issues. But if your a priori axiomatic assumption is that if there are differences in outcome, those are a consequence of patriarchal oppression, then it's a non-starter as far as I'm concerned because there are multiple reasons for an unequal outcome. I think, I think this is actually the one point where Jordan Peterson kind of falters in the interview. He, he doesn't catch that this guy has, has flipped the word require with want, uh, and, and it doesn't occur to him immediately how to respond to such a benign question. People can want anything that they like. This does, not, this, does, this does no damage to society. It's when they are able to influence legislation or shift cultural ethics that these desires become destructive. It's a hard thing to catch every little trick in an interview like this. I, I think this is part of Stephen Sacker's strategy, actually, to, to kind of machine gun accusations at Peterson, hoping that the rapid fire will be enough to catch him off guard and maybe one of the bullets will, will land before Peterson can dodge or deflect it. It's, it's astonishing to me the number of deceptive and insipid techniques this interview is using to try to take Jordan Peterson down. But despite catching Peterson a little bit off balance here, he still fails to land a strike. I mean, Jordan Peterson appears to be indefatigable. This is the only punch this guy lands throughout the interview, and it was like a super weak punch, and, and it like merely grazes Peterson. So, I mean, it's hard to even count it, really. <laughs> Do you think it was helpful for you to base a lot of your science about the difference between genders on lobsters? Well, I haven't based any of my science about well, the uh, difference between men and women on lobsters. You talk about how lobsters and humans behave the same, and in that context, you said girls, the only thing that I've girls said, aren't attracted to boys who are their friends, are attracted to boys who win status contests contest with other boys, and you describe that in the yeah. same breath as you describe how male and female lobsters what? behave. The lobster thing. This is another brick. Let's call it the ridicule brick, right? This guy has taken something that sounds potentially a little bit silly, and he's exploited that potential to make it sound as silly as possible. To use it to try to ridicule Peterson's actually very valuable point about human physiology. It isn't me that makes those cases. That's a, that's a truism of evolutionary biology. If you, one of the is it a truism of, of evolutionary biology that what we learn from lobsters can be applied to humans? Well, some of it is because the neurochemical structures are very, very similar. So... And it's also the case that well, one of the things... I mean, I, I'm no expert, and I know that... Yeah, but I am. <laughs> well, I'm no expert. Yeah, well, I am. <laughs> I love that. I love it. And I know that you can mm -hmm. command a lot of science that I cannot, but mm -hmm. it just seems to me, on the face of it, to be somewhat bizarre to compare lobsters and humans given the different size of their brains. Here is another instance of Stephen Sacker struggling to get a strike against Peterson and showing his cards. Instead of a subtle, clever attack, he has opted to express himself more blatantly. Instead of trying to suggest that the lobster thing is bizarre, he merely states that it is bizarre. Again, this is a sign of desperation. The guy has lost a point, as he has lost every point since the beginning of the interview. But it is bizarre. That's exactly why I did it, because I was trying to make the case that one of the chronic leftist criticisms of Western society is its hierarchical nature. And that's often put at the feet of, let's say, Western society, patriarchy, and the capitalist system. It's part of the Marxist critique. 
but hierarchies have been around for 350 million years, and so you can't place them at the feet of the Western political system. And they've been around for so long that our neurochemical systems have evolved to, to their, evolved to match their existence. I mean, is it, is, it, is it study of lobsters that's also one of the foundations for your belief that, you know, a mother and a father are crucially important to the raising of a child? No. No, it is not the study of lobsters, you idiot. It's every study that's ever been conducted ever in the history of the world with regard to that particular issue. This is another attempt to reinforce the ridicule brick. He's trying to suggest that... You know what? All of Jordan Peterson's theories, they're all founded in his research into lobsters. Come on, give me a break. It's uh, certainly the case that they're crucially important if you compare them to single parents because all of the developmental literature indicates that the outcomes for children who have two parents are much better than the outcomes for child, and, and children And physical who have punishment one. for children? Uh, efficacious as far as you're concerned? Minimal necessary force is the proper principle for discipline in any, for, in any sort of relationship. And you have to negotiate that with your child and with anyone else that you interact with. You see, and the, that's definitely the theme that motivates Chapter 5, which is called Don't Let Your Children Do Anything That Makes You Dislike Them. So obviously discipline for children is necessary and negotiating how that's going to be done is very difficult. It is interesting. I mean, you are an advocate, in essence, for toughening up for, uh, I mean, you say things like, you know, men have to, I don't know if you ever use the phrase, but others do man up in a way that they consistently Actually, fail to do. I usually mention that they should stop being pathetic weasels. <laughs> Yes, I effing love Jordan Peterson. Pathetic so, weasels, yeah, yeah, right. So I guess that would fall into the tough so, enough so, category. So, so I suppose one odd thing about you and the way that the public debate around you has worked out is that you seem so brittle and thin-skinned about criticism. Brittle and thin-skinned in the face of criticism? You seem so brittle and thin-skinned about criticism. Uh, well, I, I, I suppose you might make that case, but I don't think that my media experiences have demonstrated that. I would say quite the contrary. Well, your media experiences, your social media experiences do suggest that. One of the, the, the best-known critiques of your work from Pankaj Mishra in the New York Review of Books oh, yes, had you one. so angry, I mean, and half the language because that you used, I, was... I, can't, I can't repeat, but you called him an arrogant, racist son of a you-know-what. Mm -hmm. you, you, you said that you would happily slap him if he was in the same That's room right. as you. That's because he referred to a friendship I had with a native Canadian guy of, of several decades and said that I was romancing the noble savage, which I regarded as an indefensible statement. And if he had been on, on the right, you can be sure he would have been but, torn but, I mean, to shreds what about by humility? the Twitter what about someone Okay, so this guy has taken one reaction Jordan Peterson had once to one article, and he has decided to characterize every reaction that Jordan Peterson has ever had to any criticism ever by this one incident. He's essentially using the same techniques racists use to condemn a race or sexists use to condemn an entire gender, but he is instead applying it to this one individual, so I suppose in his mind that that makes it okay. What a piece of total garbage. But, but I mean, what about humility? What about mob? some of the values you tell all the rest of us that we, we must try to pursue? I mean, humility is one of them. You say you must assume the person you're listening to may know something you don't. Oh. How dare Jordan Peterson ever fall short in any ideal he ever suggests people strive toward? So now he's trying to accuse Jordan Peterson of hypocrisy. So what is a hypocrite exactly? The hypocrite is the advocate of an ethic who does not believe that ethic applies to himself. He believes that he transcends the values he preaches because he is superior to the rest of humanity. 
That is not what Jordan Peterson is. Jordan Peterson is merely an imperfect human. Any advocate of an ethic who also strives himself toward that ethic but falls short of perfection is not a hypocrite, but merely an imperfect human. This is one of the fundamental observations of Christianity. Christianity is full of ideas that we frail humans will never be able to fully embody. We are imperfect beings. That does not mean we should never try, and it certainly doesn't mean we should never promote appropriate ethics. The entirety of the Bible exists as a set of ideals to strive toward. The Bible does not tell us that if we fall short of the desires of God, that we should just stop trying altogether, or that we should never teach those ethics to others. There is no teacher in any discipline on earth who should ever stop teaching merely because he is not a perfect practitioner of the discipline about which he is educating others. Sacker suggests that because Jordan Peterson is an imperfect person that he should never teach any values whatsoever. This is an absurd notion. He knows it, but he's trying to create another brick, the brick of hypocrisy. You say you must assume the person you're listening to may know something you don't. Yes, you should try to do that on the off chance that they can tell you something oh, that you don't know. But you just see it an off chance, because... Well, you're I mean, I, that was you're a, pretty convinced it was an ironic, right. it was yeah. an ironic comment. Humility does not mean an utter disregard for your own ideas entirely. Sacker is claiming that because Jordan Peterson does not instantly assume that everyone who contradicts him ever is somehow more knowledgeable, more intelligent, or has better information than he does, that somehow makes him arrogant, that he's not practicing the humility that he preaches. You're pretty convinced that you're right. What a total piece of human garbage. Everyone, everyone is pretty convinced that they're right. The issue is not whether someone should or should not be pretty convinced that they're right. The question is whether or not they're open to new ideas. Jordan Peterson is you, Stephen Sacker. It appears are not. I'm more convinced that I would rather know some things that I don't know. And I do listen to people very, very carefully, just like I'm listening to you very, very carefully. And I do do that because I would rather know some things that I don't know than be completely sure that what I already know is correct. That Fine. doesn't mean I won't defend my points, but I'm very good at talking to people and listening to them. I've been doing it for thousands and thousands of hours, and I've learned plenty from people that I've disagreed with. Because your success is very striking. I just wonder, and you talk a lot about success and what, what leads to success. Has your success made your life more meaningful? Uh, I would say yes, but it's... In it's, what ways? Well, it's more intense. The stakes are higher. The, the impact is larger. The amount of responsibility I bear for what I say is, is, has increased, and the number of people that I'm affecting has grown immensely. And so all of that's associated with a deeper sense of meaning, but it's not without its cost. I have to be very careful for all sorts of reasons. And so I'm trying to be very careful and bearing in mind that what I'm saying is, is going to be um, disproportionately impactful. But I do believe, mostly from watching my audiences, let's say, in my public tours, that the primary effect that I'm having is in helping individuals establish themselves more firmly in their personal and, and public lives, and that that's working very well. Jordan Peterson, we have to end there, but I thank you very much for being on Hard Talk. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. This last question is actually a very fair and reasonable question. He's not trying to create a brick with which to establish a foundation from which he can build a false construction of Jordan Peterson. It's just a fair, reasonable, genuine question. The cynic in me says that he did this so that he wouldn't look like a complete and total a-hole. The optimist in me wants to see him redeemed slightly for asking one reasonable question. Sadly, the realist in me seems to want to side with the cynic. This was an incredible interview. 
Initially, I had set out to identify and discuss the most interesting questions and answers. I thought I might discredit some of the more egregious offenses of Stephen Sacker if egregious offenses were to be discovered. But what I found was that just about every single question in this interview was an egregious offense. So I had to go back and restructure all of my notes to account for the extreme nature of this particular interview. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite this antagonistic since the Kathy Newman interview. This guy was out to get Jordan Peterson. It occurred to me that he was attempting to build, in the mind of the viewer, an entirely false construct of Jordan Peterson, a fake version of Peterson, a version that made sense in their leftist fantasy world, a version in which Jordan Peterson and his followers were all bigots and irrational children, the arguments of whom had zero merit, a version in which Peterson is evil to be detested and derided. Because if, if Peterson is evil and because if his, if his followers are evil, then everything the leftists believe is then validated. They can continue to believe that the fantasy world in which they live is real. But if Peterson is not evil, if his followers are not evil, that means that these leftists should question their assumptions about the world. It's no longer safe to merely assume that the fantasy is reality. This is becoming the primary position of the left. They are taking a position of defense against the scales falling from their eyes. They desperately want to remain in the fantasy, but they can see it dissolving around them. It's becoming ever more obvious that men are not necessarily oppressors, that white people aren't necessarily evil, and that women, minorities, gays, immigrants, and Muslims aren't all simply angelic victims. And when these fundamental fantasies finally become too obviously false to believe, and the leftists are forced to look at reality, they will have to accept the truth that they have been wrong all along. This is too painful for them to even imagine. And so they cling to their fantasies desperately. And this desperation expresses itself in interviews like this. So obviously biased, so obviously attempting character assassination, so obviously misrepresenting the subject of the interview. This was a great interview, not because of how wonderful Steven Sacker was, but because of how obviously corrupt he was. Oftentimes, this kind of revelation is more valuable than a simple, respectful interview. I hope this video becomes as popular as the Kathy Newman one. I know this won't happen, but people need to see the bias, the irrationality, and the desperation of the left. Well, that's it for me. I do have a Patreon, so if you have tons of money that you don't know what to do with, consider giving a tiny bit to me. I can make more of these videos and hopefully spread some of these ideas around a little bit. All right, well, if you like this episode, hit the like button. If you want to see more episodes like this, please subscribe. And if you hate me, that's okay. You can stay in your fantasy bubble world. <laughs> Good night. You know, someone very profoundly once said many years ago that if fascism ever comes to America, it'll come in the name of liberalism. Is it morally right? And on that basis and that basis alone, we make a decision on every issue. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem.